This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. The value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. In South Africa, 91 is an authorised financial services provider. This podcast is part of the Great Shutdown and its medium-term effects series from the 91 Investment Institute. And with me today is Daniel Morgan, analyst, multi-asset, 91, speaking to us from New York. Now, the title, The the Great Shutdown, is a good one, but I particularly like the piece that you kindly sent me. And it's all about uh, the state and the the return of the state with a question mark at the end of it, because the state is suddenly uh, exerting a huge influence on all our lives. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I think the the background is that um, for probably 40 years or so, the influence of the state, certainly in the economic sphere, has been receding and power has been given back to the private sector or has been devolved from, from national government to local government or even to, to international bodies. But in this crisis, it's really national governments that have had to step up and assume responsibility because they're the only ones with the ability to deploy the resources that are needed to manage this kind of of crisis. And the question we're we're wondering about is to what extent uh, this marks a, a turning point in that sort of trend away from state intervention and state involvement in in the economy and in in the private sector, and whether there's a longer term influence here on on the role of government in society. That's very interesting, actually, because some states will inevitably, and we don't need to mention names, will um, abuse the power and abuse the COVID-19 crisis in order to gain what they've been seeking to gain for uh, many, many years. But others are genuinely in there in order to help the population. So it's a delicate uh, balancing act that we've got going on here between some countries and others. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And I mean, in the piece, we we attempt to cover uh, the whole world, but certainly the the experiences in different countries will be will be very very different. And we've seen the one very specific area where um, governments have stepped up activity massively is in their collection of data on the population and, and health data, obviously, and um, trying to design contact tracing systems and so on. And we've seen how in authoritarian countries um, that data has basically been been taken from from the citizens. And they don't really have a choice in the matter. In other regimes, there's a balancing act to be found between, you know, getting buy-in from the public and and getting them to to want to contribute their data towards, you know, a public health effort. Yes, in the United Kingdom, for example, I've been watching the BBC over the last couple of days, and it's all to do with something called Test and Trace, which I think is a, a genuine attempt to help people through this this crisis. But other other states are maybe not abusing it, but certainly using it to their advantage. You say in your first paragraph, the response to the COVID-19 pandemic has seen governments intervene in economies, financial markets, and everyday life with unprecedented speed and reach. The experience of the crisis and the public policy transformation it has brought about amount to a reordering of the social contract. We'll get to this at the end, but just uh, as a backdrop to the, uh, on our next few minutes of conversation, do you think it'll ever go back to what it was? Or do you think that the policies that are being implemented now will become part of their, in other words, the authorities and our lives? I mean, our, our conclusion is that <clears throat> this shift is, is too seismic to 
for things just to snap back to the way they were. I mean, I think you've seen you've seen sort of ideological breakthroughs that were just unimaginable. So you've had politicians who would have been extremely opposed to, to all sorts of government intervention uh, voting through measures to have governments essentially paying the salaries of private sector employees or you know in the US the federal government is is essentially encouraging people unemployed people not to go looking for jobs by giving them payments which are in excess of what they were earning when they were employed and so those those kinds of policies have been normalized to a degree and the ideological opposition to them has just been has just broken down so dramatically clearly that's that's designed to be a short-term measure but i think inevitably some of those changes will prove more durable um and you know, you know some of the of that uh, normalization of, of the policies and just acceptance of of new ideas of what works in a crisis will just will flow through into more normal economic management so even after the crisis ends there will still be certain of these policies that will endure yes and i mean so we we think about it in, in, I guess, two different ways. There, there's the sort of the very direct impacts, um, and if you think about um, the the health uh, healthcare sector and public health policy, for example, is, is probably the most obvious area. Um, and there, I think, the need to uh, fund healthcare systems at a higher level than they have been, and to, and to, to uh, introduce greater capacity into the system, I think, is a very clear consequence and any worries about um how money is found to that for that for that purpose will just have to be pushed aside and governments are just gonna gonna have to step up and and borrow more and fund those systems more extensively and then there are other areas where the effects may be more subtle and i think in some of the um the policies towards uh redistributing of wealth and income across societies and of um ensuring kind of greater job security and, in, and employment rights for people. I think those effects are more subtle, but they're probably, um, in the long run, the more the more transformative parts of this. You say the following, burning issues around inequality, employment practices and the role of the corporation in society have been thrown into sharp relief by the uneven way in which the impact of the crisis has been felt and will remain at the top of the political agenda for the foreseeable uh, future. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the inequality debate was always a relatively dry one, I think, which was in terms of you know numbers, wealth, and and income, and how those how those statistical distributions look like across societies and how they change over time. But we've been given a very vivid and very real example of what that can actually mean, and you know every one of us has has seen that in our everyday lives. And for those of us who are lucky enough to to be able to uh, to work from home and to to stay to stay safe we've we've see the privilege that that is and how how difficult situation is for for other people who've had to you know put themselves at significant danger to to keep things working for us all um and i i just think that that just has a huge a huge political impact that goes beyond what um you, you know the sort of the the statistical or the the uh, theoretical analysis could ever have, have provided on the issue. 
Does it open the door for political opportunists? In other words, uh, could there be a seismic political shift from whatever system we have in whatever continent we're talking about to, to something completely different? And if so, is that a good or a bad thing? Was it to, uh, is this a, when we look back, do we say to ourselves when we read the history books, actually that was a rather good thing because we were all becoming a little bit stuck in a rut politically and uh, we were becoming complacent? I think we we can't we can't know the answer to that now. We'll we'll have to wait until those history books are written. Um, I mean, certainly it plays to uh, to populist talking points, um, and you know, any any populist politician will seek to take advantage of it. Um, I mean, it, it's to be hoped that it's the spur to you know a, a serious and and uh, sort of deep reflection on on how. Um, societies and economies are structured to, you know, for the best uh, of all of all citizens. But um, certainly, that's not that's not a foregone conclusion. I mean, we we look at some of the past examples where th- there are a number of, of historic events of this scale, or you know, e- even more uh, large scale human disasters in history, where that moment has marked a major shift, and you've seen a much more equal society for example emerge on the back of that but it's not always the case i mean the, the big the big example that, that everyone points to is the black death now obviously the the death and destruction of of this pandemic is is nowhere near the scale of that where you know, perhaps a third or maybe even more of the working age population of europe was wiped out um but in that example there was a, a huge shift in much of europe towards much much more equal societies much higher average wages um but that wasn't the only possible outcome. And in parts of Europe, it actually uh, led to a really um, harsh form of feudalism being being imposed and sort of the opposite impact. So you you can't say that this kind of this kind of disaster always has a single outcome and it's always a positive one. Um, but we can certainly find historic examples where the outcomes have been very positive. Indulge me if it would, because I'm going to read two paragraphs that you've written. It says uh, that the two that really stand out for me are the following. The bottom line is that once the crisis recedes, we should not expect to simply revert to the status quo ante. Just as myopia and social pressure compel generals to fight the last war, so too will the state begin preparing for the next crisis in earnest. It may become accepted that the state can and should intervene in similar ways on an ongoing basis... And the final sentence is as follows. The requirement to direct greater resources to healthcare and disaster planning is the most definite conclusion we can draw. But the larger changes related to inequality, employment and corporate responsibility may ultimately be more transformative. What we haven't spoken about is the private sector. And perhaps we should bring that in now, because after all, 91 is a fund manager. It manages people's money. Uh, Yes, absolutely. And... um the consequences there are, are again, intricate and, and there are man, many aspects to untangle. I mean, I think the corporate sector is not to blame for this crisis in the way that perhaps the financial sector was to blame for the great financial crisis. Um, so there's not the same obvious need to to right some, some big wrongs that had gone on within the corporate world. But at the same time, there's a, a clear feeling that particular sectors had overstretched or had been managed for the be- for the benefit of executives and shareholders rather than taking a broader account of their responsibilities to, to other stakeholders. Um, and this obviously is part of 
the big movement that we're seeing across across the investment community to a greater consideration of of ESG issues. And I think uh, the crisis will will just strengthen that push and uh, uh, the sort of the the debates that are that are already extremely live around you know what what is the the correct way to uh, structure incentives for corporate management to ensure that companies are run for the benefit of, of the whole of society. I think those those debates are just going to get more and more important over the years ahead. Yes, yeah, so weeks, months, years ahead, definitely. Uh, Daniel, I've got to, um, my final question has a sort of two parts to it. The first one is that after what you've just outlined, uh, governments intervening, states intervening, it's obviously going to stretch uh, their central banks and their own balance sheets. And in the long term, do you think, and medium and long term, do you think that might be detrimental to everybody because it puts a pressure on the financial system? That's the first part of the question. The second part of the question, which you can come to after you've answered that one, is will anything good come out of this? So let's start with the financial balance sheets of the central banks. Yes. So, so, I mean, I think our view on the fiscal situation is that the the attempt that we've seen for much of the last decade to to run to manage debt levels down through austerity programs is over, um, and there is now a much greater willingness to provide fiscal stimulus and to to run larger deficits on an ongoing basis. And that that inevitably creates a, a difficult problem around around government balance sheets, and there are no good ways out of that. I mean, in, in the first piece in the Great Shutdown series, uh, Russell Silverstone did some some really good analysis on the different sort of possible solutions to it. Yes, um, and it seems that the most likely combination involves some kind of financial repression, so holding down real interest rates and hopefully a a return of sort of modest inflation so that over time government debt balances at at least don't run away to the upside and if they can be if they could be contained at sort of current levels then then maybe that's viewed as sustainable and there's not actually a need to to bring them back dramatically over time the the immediate impact has obviously been been horrific in particular in certain areas um i mean what one one simple good thing is that we should be better prepared for this next time. I mean, there could be no excuses now about um, not understanding the risks that the viruses can can present. And I think from from the, from the point of view of societies overall, I think probably the the biggest potential positive is a greater focus on a more equal distribution of resources and opportunities. And that's been something that's been argued about and debated for forever and there are, there are no easy solutions um, but I just think the the focus that this that this experience has put on that problem just means that it's it's not something that can be ducked any longer. Daniel thanks so much for your excellent analysis that's Daniel Morgan analyst multi-asset at 91 speaking to us from New York.